what happened was the amygdala, the activity in the amygdala slowed down and it went and the activity, the neuronal activity went up to the prefrontal cortex on the right side, lateral prefrontal cortex. And that was a way that I think really supports when you put your feelings into words and before you do that, how overwhelming they feel, it's a way of regulating them. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason, and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of grief. These stories are shared with the wish that you, the listener, may find some comfort, hope and solidarity, and maybe also the realisation that you're not alone in your grief. Each time you listen, please do support the podcast by donating on the website shapesofgrief.com or by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests for showing up in this particular way. It truly is a gift. Hello everyone, wherever in the world you are this week, welcome to Shapes of Grief. Um, I have another wonderful guest this week, Dorothy Hollinger, PhD, who is an academic psychologist uh, or was an academic psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for over 23 years. And Dorothy is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and has her own psychotherapy practice in the USA. I'm holding in my hands her book, The Anatomy of Grief. For anyone watching on YouTube, you can see the the cover there. And I want to begin by just reading a paragraph, which is on page 76. Five went to the hospital, four adults and a baby, but only the four adults left, carrying the baby's clothes folded inside the bunting. My mother said she didn't hold her baby after she died. It wasn't allowed then. Or maybe she just couldn't. Her shock at the death of my sister crushed her. Mm. There was no autopsy. My grandmother ruled against it. And my mother gave in, not realizing that this meant she would never know why her baby died. It was from my aunt who was there that many of these family details gradually became known to me over the years. Dorothy, you're so welcome. Okay. You know, it's interesting as you were reading it, as always, when I go into any of this with regard to my sister's death and my mother's death, I just get all goosebumps and emotional. And and I think, you know, after all these years, I mean, she died when I was a year and a half, not quite. (laughs) And so it's really extraordinary how grief doesn't go away. It calms, it subsides, but any kind of a stimulus, like, of course, words are so powerful and reading that paragraph um, is so moving to me. Um, I grew up, with my mother never really having grieved her baby. In fact, um, whenever I would mention it, mention my sister, whose name was Elaine, by the way, I learned very early on not to do that very much because my mother would just go into a place where she seemed She was accessible, but she was so very sad. She wouldn't always cry sometimes, but so in any event, I I grew up staying away from that. And the only people who would talk about my sister and her death, like I described in that paragraph, um, was my family. And um, they talked about what happened to her and how, well, anyway, let me, let me fast forward. 
my understanding, given all of my research on the brain, is that what she died of was cerebral meningitis. And I mean, the, the symptoms fit with what my family would tell, had told me. So um, that really made a huge difference for me to know that there was, that I knew, or at least all the clues point to that. Um, Those two words, cerebral meningitis, the importance of them to finally put words on, yes. on a concept. And you talk yeah. about this in your book, actually, the importance of giving a narrative to grief, to the experience yes. and the importance of words. I'm curious, you know, you went on to do some research on the brain, how this early, early experience, you were one and a half, right. probably, you know, decided the trajectory of your life. You know, that's a wonderful point, Liz. I never thought about it that way, but yeah. And you know what else I think figured into that trajectory? Um, I was, <laughs> my, it drove my mother crazy. I was always asking why, but what? But supposing this, but supposing. And um, I think it it's really what led me to go into clinical psychology, but with a focus in terms of the research on the brain. And I've done electrophysiology and MRI, as well as in the last work that I did, um, was measuring uh, neurons in postmortem brains. And um, that was just, to get answers was always so, exciting and satisfying and you know as I'm talking um, and thinking about this my mother never knew because um, she died before I really figured this out you know Liz I figured it out when I was writing the book <laughs> like yeah. one always figures things out um, the words you know the written word is powerful in a very different way than the spoken word, like what we're doing, speaking back and forth to it, each other. Um, it pulls you back. I, I want, I'm, I'm trying not to filter, <laughs> pulls you back to the unconscious that is really just bubbling up. And it's, that's the, um, the rich resource that you have for what it is that what art you're using to express yourself. And um, that's what happened. I, I cried a lot writing this book and it surprised me. I'm mean, not that I'm surprised when I cry because it's easy for me to do that, but it surprised me the places I went um, that were scary sometimes, but ultimately wonderful. Um, and <laughs> this this brings tears to my eyes, but I've memorialized my sister in this book, and I'm so happy for that, as well as my mother. You've given Elaine a place. Yes, yes. A place yes. to be. It's yeah. really interesting, Dorothy, because in Ireland, just this in the last month, we had a census, you know, where yeah. the government puts a form in everyone's home. And this year they put an extra piece in called a time capsule, you know, where you could write whatever you wanted in the time capsule. But so many people put in their Elaine's, you know, yeah. their babies that had been born in the last four years uh, and died in the last yeah. four years um, who wouldn't otherwise be, be in a census anywhere. Um, and the importance of giving place relocating yeah. our deceased loved ones, giving them somewhere to be, it can be so important for the bereaved. Profound loss can rock our inner world. It's confusing, life-altering, and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools, or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief trained, 
the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. I want to segue maybe into um, part of your book, Dorothy. You look at, you talk about grief in the head, grief in the heart, and grief in the body. And you talk about grief in the brain, actually, the grief brain. And, you know, you, you talk there about examining the neurons and post-mortem bodies, which is interesting. Yes. Could we move to the brain in grief and what do you yes. know about that? Well, um, you know, it, you know, it depends at what point after the death of the loved one, the bereaved is at. Um, in the acute phrase phase when they first hear about it, you know, there's a number of different reactions and it's the body that really takes over. Um, And, but when that is lived through with, um, you know, a funeral service and the burial, et cetera, and the family leaves and the friends leave, it's then that the brain has to deal with the emptiness. And very often, cognition isn't the same. Actually, a lot. Not um, You can't remember things like you did. I have a friend who told me about her friend who worked in the library. And she, um, it was a very sad thing. Her, I think her, it was her son who died of a drug overdose. And she came back to the library to work. But she would say to my friend, I can't remember anybody's name. I see their face. Please, when they come in, I'm going to just somehow signal you and you have to tell me what their name is. And, you know, other times, um, you know, there is a kind of rare grief that you've talked about, actually, in one of your podcasts Um, used to be called complicated grief and now prolonged grief. By the way, when I first was, as a graduate student, yeah, I was working on the brain too. Um, it was, we were, we were researching um, that kind of grief, which we didn't really know what it was at that point because it was a long time ago, but it was called pathological grief, which is dreadful. Yeah. Um, but in any event, in a, um, a wonderful study by Frances, uh, Mary Frances O'Connor, she found a place in the brain. Well, maybe you talked about that in the podcast. I, I, I didn't hear the That's whole okay. thing. Pardon? That's okay. We can go over it again. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but that part of the brain in the group of women who had complicated, it, the study called it complicated, now it's prolonged grief, compared to the women who did not have that kind of grief, um, the reward center was activated. And, uh, and, and part of that is not just that it's a reward center. I mean, that's part of it, but it's also because it becomes a habit. It's interesting. I didn't think I was going to be talking about prolonged grief, but I've worked with several patients who had prolonged grief. And, you know, there's a controversy now. I was at a conference yesterday and rather Friday and Saturday. And people are um, uh, conflicted about that this, this grief is now put into the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Well, you know, when people have this kind of grief, it is, it is so different than any other kind of grief. And you know, part of this is financial. If you don't have a diagnosis for it, uh, the insurance doesn't pay for it. So it gets very murky. But I, I think um, from my experience that it is a good idea. It, you know, it's called prolonged grief. And it, it really only affects about 5% of the people in the U.S. and 2 to 3% in the world yeah. globally. Yeah. So... I think a lot of the controversy is misunderstanding actually yeah. of what yeah. we're we're talking about because I have seen people who are very prominent in the world of grief um just completely misquoting the DSM yes. actually 
Um, and I think one of the dangers is when people, maybe you're a psychotherapist and have a significant bereavement themselves, but yeah. maybe aren't, haven't really researched the, the you know, what's available in, in, in grief research. They take their personal experience and make it universal. Yeah. And if yeah. prolonged grief disorder doesn't apply to me, then it doesn't exist. And True. I'm I'm seeing that, you know, and um, it's unfortunate that some people have loud voices in the space. But I think it, I, I fully agree with you. It is a thing. It absolutely is there. And it's not when grief endures. It's when it endures with a very high volume on it yes. for a very long period of time. It's relentless. It, it doesn't go away. Way. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I give an example with permission of a couple whose son died, let's say four years ago, died suddenly and tragically. And he talks about his son all the time. He oh. carves out little things in memorial to him. He'll go out with his friends and have a drink and talk about his son. He'll go to work and talk about his son over the, the table at work. And he's processing his grief. There's no problem. He is still grieving. It's four years down the line. His son is very much part of his life still. And he's managing with life. His wife, on the other hand, um, has stopped working, cannot re-engage with her friends, doesn't like to talk about her son, thinks what if, if only, if only he wasn't on holidays, if only we'd phoned him sooner, if only he yeah. hadn't made that decision, you know, and she thinks about that constantly. And mm -hmm. she suffers from acute chronic anxiety, like anxiety that's there yeah. all the time. And all her life is about her deceased son, 24 7. Yeah. There's the difference. Yeah. One of them Huge. has a long grief disorder and one doesn't, but they're still both grieving their child four years down the line. Yeah. You know, it's interesting um, that four years down the line, the father is grieving in a way that sounds like he's really working. Um, he's doing grief work, you know, and um, other people. Oh, yes, I just lost my thought and found it. <laughs> um, Julian Barnes in his book, um, Levels of Life, talks about how it took him four years to be able to go into his house, into the front hall, without bursting into tears. Mm. And, you know, I mean, that's the other issue when people say, well, how long does it take? It is entirely individual. Some people who have, like, you know, I know a woman who lost her husband um, very unexpectedly, but she had four daughters and a family that she lived very close to. And she was, um, it took her about a year. And, and then she fit back into her, into a life, a different life, obviously, living without her husband. But whereas other people, uh, you can't give a number for how long no. or what's going to happen. No. It's extraordinary. And it's not the length of time. It's the quality of your grief. You know, if True. you are happy eight years after your loved one has died, if you are content and accepting with the way you grieve, that's fine. It's sure. not like there's psychologists out there going, you, you and you need to come in here. <laughs> you know, um, from my experience, these are people who are out there who find prolonged grief disorder online and go, thank God this is a thing and there's a name for it. And I yeah. think I have this. And yeah. if I have this, then maybe there's help for me. From my experience, it's, it's for the people out there who are suffering who wants yeah. this it's not yeah. for everybody who's okay with their grief you know yeah it, it's it's not for them it's that's a, a lovely thing you said um they're okay with their grief and you know that's one of the things i talk about when i give talks which is it's okay to it's okay to grieve you have you need to feel that because if you're not feeling it, it's going to come out somewhere in some bodily symptom. Um, for example, I know someone else, an acquaintance who was telling me, um, it was after I wrote the book, actually. She said, you know, after my mother died, I, um, 
I just kept eating and eating. You know, some other people can go in the other direction. She said, and I had no idea what was going on. She said, finally, I realized six months into it, after her mother died, I had no taste. And this is way before COVID. She said, I couldn't taste my food. And she said, once that insight happened, of course, with all of us, and as we as psychologists understand, that insight will also take cognition and emotion and put it together in a way that you then can go forward, yeah. uh, knowing something, feeling something, thinking something that you hadn't that you hadn't gotten onto earlier. Anyway, yeah, um, it's the marriage of the bottom-up experience of grief, yes. right? Grief in the yes. body, and then uh, meaning making. Robert Niemeyer's work, making yeah. sense of the physical experience. Yeah, and then you yeah. talk about that in the anatomy of grief, the importance of of naming something. Yes. It makes it manageable when we can put words on it. And I yes. guess that's what prolonged grief disorder does, that label, while some people cringe at it, for other people it's, oh, thank you, someone is naming yeah. my experience, which I'm not seeing in other places. And, you know, I think that they change the word um, from complicated to prolonged um, helps a great deal. It's it It's... You know, when you see the word complex or complicated, you think, ah, oh, how, what? But prolonged, it, it, it just gives you an understanding that what you're going through is long. It is prolonged. And it's making your life, for some people, dysfunctional. Yeah. yeah like exactly. the woman that you talked about, the mom that that's all she does is She's so connected to the death of her child that she can't allow herself to live in ways that she did beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's really, really suffering, which is yeah, very different yeah. from really, really grieving. <laughs> but she is really suffering. And I think that's, yeah. that's a big difference, you know, um, prolonged suffering as opposed yeah. to still grieving someone years later which can be a very normative experience. Darling, exactly. We've kind of jumped over the brain and we're, we're in the body here. Tell us a little bit more about grief in the body from your research in, in the book. Well, you know, I, um, funny, I'm gonna, if it's okay, jump to the heart, which is in the body. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, that's one of, one of my favorite chapters um, because, Grief in, again, it's rare for anybody to experience this, but you know how metaphorically we'll say, my heart is breaking. Uh, I, I feel like there's a hole in my heart. Well, there is something called broken heart syndrome that technically is called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Um, and something does happen to the body, the heart uh, the shock of the death is so intense for some people. And this is about 5%. It usually happens more to women than to men. Although a recent study, uh, let me be able to come back to this. A recent uh, report at Yale said that there were people, um, young people coming into the emergency room experiencing broken heart syndrome because of COVID and the pandemic and, and the distress that they've been experiencing. Well, anyway, let me go back to um, broken heart syndrome. Um, what happens, you know, that, that bottom part of the heart, uh, the pumping part. The left ventricle. Thank you. <laughs> the left ventricle. Um, that balloons out. And so that bottom part of the heart, you know, with the narrow aorta on the top, looks like a Japanese uh, octopus catching pot and it's that's called a takotsubo. And that usually, by the way, most times, and again, you know, we're talking teeny, teeny numbers here. Um, things go back to normal. There are no lasting effects. Um, but the phenomenon of that happening to the body, I mean, this is grief expressed this is grief exploding 
And um, that hasn't, I haven't worked with anybody like that, but uh, at all. I, I, my, in my experience, so many people, when they talk about the pain of grief, and I ask them, where is it? Where do you feel it in, the, yeah. in your body? They will always put their hand right there. Yeah, in their heart. And they will say, it's like a tightness here. Yeah. You know, it's a tightness here. And it's interesting. I knew that about the Japanese octopus pot. Uh -huh. um, and actually, after the earthquake in Christchurch in New Zealand, um, a few years ago, there was 20 cases or 18 cases of Takotsubo reported. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, following that huge community disaster. But mm -hmm. it is, it's so physical, um, the experience of grief. It's such a visceral, physical experience. It is. We have this going on in the heart. I think the tendons also uh, become quite fragile, the tendons of the heart. But like you say, it's a, it's a temporary condition. Yeah. And for most people, you know, um, things go back to normal. But our chances of heart attack, I think it's Mat Matoski al um, have reported that our chances of heart attack following yeah. a significant loss really do increase in the yeah. six months after a loss. True. True. Yeah. 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 Um, you... Go ahead, Dorothy. Um, it, well, it just occurred to me as we were talking about how when grief is expressed in the body, um, Darian Leader, uh, who's written a very nice book, um, he's a psychoanalyst in London, and he describes a child who lost his father, giving, that's why I don't tell jokes, because I know it's true what the punchline is first, but in any event, um, I think, I don't know, he was about six or seven and his mother had a visitor and the woman said, why, why is your son sitting in that suitcase? And she said, oh, I don't know, he's just playing. Well, leader interpreted that as, that was the silent way that boy was expressing the last time he saw his father, which was in a coffin. And I thought, boy, was that powerful. You know, children don't, they don't have the language where you do, but they sometimes can express through what they're doing with their bodies. And so do we actually, you know, I mean, you know, when you just talked about putting your hand over your heart, when you think about, something powerful something emotional that can also be joyful um we're so connected absolutely you you were mentioning there the brain and it's in your book as well the anatomy of grief the changes that happen in the brain and you know you mentioned that woman who couldn't remember anybody's names in the last yes. and you know correct me if i'm wrong that's something to do with the amygdala swelling um and sort of stopping the flow of blood and oxygen to the prefrontal cortex? Well, when, whenever you have an intense emotion, it's the amygdala um, that responds, first of all, with the neurons that, have, that are, um, I was going to say going like gangbusters, but kind of, they're just, that's where the activation is, which is subcortical. And a very lovely study um, that's been quoted a number of times by Matthew Lieberman and his folks showed that, uh, well, let me go into the study a little bit. It was an fMRI study. So people were looking at photos of people that had negative emotions. They, they were scowling or they looked angry or they looked sad. And so the, the, uh, instruction was describe it, just use a word to describe that. So when they used the words that were negative, that went with the negative uh, expression, what happened was the amygdala, the processing and the, uh, the activity in the amygdala slowed down and it went and the activity, the neuronal activity went up to the prefrontal cortex on the right, on the right side, lateral, uh, prefrontal cortex. And 
that was um, a way that I think really supports when you put your feelings into words, even though, and before you do that, how overwhelming they feel, it's a way of regulating them. Yeah. Um, so it helps with grief. And I say that um, in my talks, usually at the end that, you know, speak your grief, write your grief, paint your grief, garden your grief, anything that you can do that expresses that. And again, I go back to Julian Barnes. Um, it was a very powerful part of his book. He talked about how he went to um, dinner with some wonderful friends and he mentioned his wife's name three times. Not one of those times did anybody pick up and say, well, how are you doing? I'm so sorry you lost Pat. And he said, boy, you know, it reminds us who have Catholic background. Um, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. The undergarments, uh, the unspoken. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, Dan Segal talks about this in his work also, doesn't he? Dan Segal, the neuroscientist, about the importance of naming our emotions. Yeah. Name it to tame it, I think is his expression. Oh, that's, yeah, no, I don't know that. Yeah, that's uh, what, name it to tame, I, I love it that. Tame it, and it's it's like, it you does. know, when you're, you're talking there about the amygdala shrinking, once we name, I'm terrified, or I'm anxious, yes. or this is making me uncomfortable. Once we can name our yeah. experience or I feel so sad or express it with words or with emotion, the amygdala, the amygdala shrinks and our nervous systems begins to set to settle and we're no longer in fight right. or flight mode. Um, right. And so you know that, that it, it's, it's neuronal processing that um, calms down and the processing, uh, where the activity is seen, uh, fMRI, like with that Lieberman study, is up to the right lateral prefrontal cortex. Um, and you know, yes, the amygdala is <laughs> fight, flight, but there's another one too that people don't usually mention, which is freeze. Yeah. Because when animals are frightened, they think they're gonna be killed or something, You, they freeze. And sometimes that happens uh, when we hear about a death, people can't talk. It's like, you know, that there are just different kinds of responses, um, wailing, denial. Um, and, you know, it's that, um, that almost severed contact between the brain and the body. You can't talk because something in your world has so profoundly changed that you actually have no words yet to be able, this is in the very beginning, the acute phrase, phase. Um, and, but you do, you don't get over it, but you do process it. You work your grief and it does change. But another thing that may be helpful to realize is Crisis can create growth. I mean, we as clinicians know that. We see how people change, particularly when they're in the midst of a crisis because everything comes apart. You know, it's um, if you think of an earthquake in a way or Humpty Dumpty, but you put your life back together in a way that you go on living and you can find joy and as I say in the book also, the lead of grief can be transformed into gold, the gold of joy. Um, it's, it's never without its sadness, it's bittersweet, but it's, you go on with your life and, and those images, those memories of the beloved deceased, you see them and you you know, it makes you chuckle sometimes with some silly thing that happened or some, um, and it makes you cry sometimes, but. I think, you know, I think, you know, we talk about post-traumatic growth in option B or, yeah, uh, or, you know, this, this 
psychological growth that can happen after loss. And I think it's there if the individual wants it. You know, it's part of our mm. meaning making, isn't it? It's yes, you know, yes. Well, this is how I'm going to find my place in the world now by making it mean this. Um, and some people don't want that. They just don't right. want that. Um, so it doesn't happen for everyone, but it happens. It's there available for some people, should they choose it. But it is like, if we say, if we were to suggest, oh, maybe you'll be a better person or you'll grow from this, we'd probably get a slap. <laughs> and <laughs> rightly, slow, rightly sure. so. But it's when the individual themselves says, you know what, I prefer who I am. I wish they weren't dead. I yeah. would give up this new, better version of me in a flash to have them back. But it, it's part of the, the meaning making, I think, isn't yeah. it? And, you know, that um, leads me to say that the person that you were with a loved one who died, there's no longer that person because yes. who you were was work interacting with that loved one and you become as you say you find meaning you 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 become somebody new without them maybe something here too about the length of time it's as though for many people and i think this is part of the jewish tradition with sitting shiva and going through a year of all of the holidays all of the seasons that we lived with them. And, and you mark that intellectually, you know, cognitively, uh, emotionally, and physically too. Um, you're not there with your loved one. And you go um, through all of those seasons without them. Uh, and it's dreadfully sad. It hurts. But then... The next season, although, you know, I have a very dear friend and colleague who's actually it was her husband who pointed out um, Ariel in the Tempest, where I quote in the toward the end of the book, because um, I anyway, he pointed me out to that. And um, we had dinner with her the other night and she said. The second year, it seems harder for me than the first year because the first year there was some part of me thinking, who'll come back? And I mean, this is a, a brilliant neuroscientist who, uh, I mean, she knows the brain and, um, and she just started to cry a little bit and said it's the second year at times is more difficult than the first. On the other hand, or in addition, she, um, has her work and that has sustained her. And I, you know, actually for a long time, she and I talked every other week. Um, but I, is it okay? I'd like to mention where that, um, sea change, uh, came from. Okay. To, um, this was a woman, <laughs> this was a woman who came into therapy, um, a number of years ago, and she was uh, a retired professional, fabulously successful career. And so in the intake interview, she just, um, you know, as we were going through, as she was answering the questions, she said, oh, I had a pregnancy, because I think it was, what, do you have any children? Oh, I had a pregnancy. And then she moved right on, which I thought was curious. Um, and later during the therapy, Whenever anything came up, which was very rare, she'd still refer to it as a pregnancy. Whenever I tried to push a bit, sometimes not so much a bit, she just said, I don't want to talk about it. That's, it's, it was a pregnancy. That's all I have to say. So, but one day she came in and Liz, it was around the anniversary, uh, she said, I had a baby who died. She died 10 minutes after she was born. And um, her saying baby, as I say in the book, and as 
my friend's husband, who was our friend, George, said um, it, it was a sea change. It was different. She was able to access grief that she couldn't touch. Ah, oh, for I don't even want to tell you how many years. But she was finally able to do that and did. And we talked about, you know, who that baby would, that baby was a baby girl, who that baby girl might have become, what her life was like. Anyway, it was, um, you know, I think you and I both are in awe of some of the work our patients do and how they change. And um, it's a privilege to work with people. Um, it is, absolutely. It, it's amazing, Dorothy, how grief can be so unresolved for so long. Yes. And, you know, I've had similar situations where women and several, more than one hand I could count, have come because someone they love has died. But actually the grief that it really un uncovers yes. is the baby that died yes. 30, 40, 50 years ago. Exactly. And just like the paragraph I read out at the beginning of our conversation, they were never able to hold that baby. They right. thought they were bringing the baby to, to get healed in the hospital. And um, yes. that, that's so common for women of a certain generation. The yeah. grief that they had to bear without ever really experiencing fully the death of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I had another patient um, that I do write about in the book also. Um, she came in, she was referred to me for depression. And um, it was interesting, very early on in, in this therapy. Um, oh, she, let me back up. She thought she was depressed because she had just retired. She was in her mid-50s. and um, But very early on, she and I realized that she came in because of the grief she had never experienced for the baby that she had lost that I call baby Angela. And um, she wasn't able to access that grief because she got pregnant very quickly after the death of Angela. And so her life was just nonstop. She had a, um, a, a boy and she went back to work when the boy went to school. And I mean, it was just a very, very full, full life. And she loved her job, but it was when she retired that it gave her the opportunity and the time and the space and the safety to be able to explore this. And my goodness, part of that ex exploration was the trauma that she experienced because Angela was born with um, a cardiac defect and had a number of surgeries that were just, as the patient described them, awful. And she'd you know, go to the hospital and hold Angela and rock her. But the way she hurt, and so that, but then she'd bring the baby home and the baby would have to go back. But how she heard about the death was over the phone, two o'clock in the morning. And she said, I just, through the phone on the floor and I just screamed no but then you know she got dressed she and her husband and they went to the hospital but she interestingly enough after grieving uh for quite some time in the therapy she went back to her art because she was an art major in college and and uh, <laughs> sent me a, a photo um texted me a photo of a painting she did of a ladder going up to her window because she was isolated because of the pandemic. It was very funny. Anyway, um, but the work that she did was amazing. And back to your point earlier, a point which I often make as well, the need to express, sing, write, pardon yes. our grief, but find some way to express our grief. Uh, either through words or tears or uh, yeah. <laughs> products, whatever way it is, or sweat. And um, Dorothy, I'd love to go back to your chapter two of your book, which is oh, forms yeah. of grief and how that neatly um, 
slots into shapes of grief, which you commented on before yeah. we started recording today. You know, the reason I chose the name shapes of grief yeah. is really to highlight that there's so many different losses that we can experience in life and so many ways we can grieve those losses. And yeah. you've picked up on that as well in your book, um, Chapter Two, Forms of Grief. Would mm -hmm. you speak to us a little bit about that chapter? Please? Sure. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of it, but uh, that many of us know, um, I think many of your audience too know, that there are forms of grief that they experience, like anticipatory grief, which is when family members experience that a loved one is terminally ill. And anticipating that they're going to die, and there was there's a, a kind of grief that they experienced then, and that was, by the way, also experienced during the pandemic. You know, when family members didn't know if a hospitalized loved one was going to die, and then there's ambiguous grief. Um, by the way, anticipatory grief was that term came from during the First World War, Second World War, rather, um, Eric um, Lindemann from Boston, uh, there was the uh, Coconut Grove fire and also men were going into the military and never knowing whether they were gonna come back. So um, ambiguous grief, um, that's when a loved one goes missing and they're presumed dead, but there's there's no deceased body. So there's none of that ability to be able to process to see um, to see the person that, the, that just died um, at the funeral home um, to to bury them or sitting Shiva. Um, but you know, with that kind of a grief, there's always a shred of hope that the loved one will turn up somewhere, somehow. Yeah. And that's the work of Dr. Pauline Boss. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then there's forbidden grief, which um, really affects children. And this is, uh, I had actually two patients who uh, experienced this. One is a child, one is an adult. When the primary griever doesn't want to talk about the death and will say, that's it, the funeral's over, he or she is buried. I don't want to talk about it. Please don't ever mention it again. I mean, we it's hard for us to embrace that, to be able to understand that. But the death is so, so grievous for that bereaved that they don't want to talk about it. Um, and then there's disenfranchised grief. Um, this is the grief that siblings feel, you know, when they don't want to take center stage because it's the primary grievers, the parents who really are the focus. And sometimes, you know, the sibling doesn't feel like they have a right to, they have permission. Um, and that I think is uh, Kenneth Duca. Duca, yeah. Duca, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or sometimes in the case of miscarriage as well, yeah. Um, if, you know, society doesn't really recognize the laws True. or with same sex True. partners, you know, yeah. where people may not acknowledge. I mean, it's so different now, thank God, but it still has a long way yeah. to go. But um, when people don't acknowledge the relationship and therefore don't really acknowledge the laws. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, I first spotted that when a woman said, oh, you think it's bad when your husband dies? Try when your ex-husband dies. Yeah. You know, and no one acknowledges that that could be a thing for the grief. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that puts us into um, postponed or delayed grief. Um, the woman that I talked about, whose baby Angela died, I mean, she really had postponed or delayed grief. Um, it didn't interfere much with her life. Um, it did at times, but not in the way that the woman who couldn't mention the word baby. It was really quite different. Um, and, you know, this also happened during the pandemic uh, for people. I had a patient whose sister died, not of COVID actually. And she said, um, 
Dr. Hollinger, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't feel anything. I feel numb. Yeah. And we talked about how, in fact, she's, they did have a mass recently for um, the sister, how that would be a time we hoped when she'd be able to access that grief. And she did. And then there's just two other, um, there are more in the in the chapter, but two others I do want to mention. Chronic grief, um, that's a continuing hum in the background. That's what my mother, I think, experienced um, because she just stopped and not cry, but almost. And um, you could see, I could see that uh, she ne never really got over my sister's death. And um, she never integrated her, the baby. No. Yeah. She didn't. Yeah. It's, yeah. We'd, we'd expect people not to get over, I guess. But yeah, it was never, it never became manageable or integrated. You know, it's interesting what you said integrated. I, I used the words never got over. And I don't ever use those words. And I think it's because I remember my aunts saying to my mother here or there, you know, Mary, you've got to get over this. Yeah. So it's like I'm echoing what they said. And I'm shocked. Well, I, I wanted to say it because I suspect from knowing your book, I know that you you understand that. But yeah. it's exactly that. It's um, this narrative we hear in society all the time. They'll never get over that. Yeah. You know, I yeah. said today I did another interview earlier and I talked about someone passing away. I never say that. I know. I don't <laughs> They're dead. They died. I found myself pulled into what we were talking about, the culture of the time yeah. that people pass away because we don't talk about death, you know? Um, so it's it's easy to happen when we're in a certain mode. Yeah, and I, I guess, yes, exactly. The mode that you're in, the interaction that you're having with that person. And I guess I was pulled back to the time what my family would say to my mother. Yeah. Um, and then the last one I do want to mention, which is so powerful for all of us now, collective grief. You know, the grief experienced on a national or global level when a national di disaster like COVID-19, you know, it resulted in just about a million deaths in the U.S., but many more millions in the internationally. And of course, the tragedy of this awful war that's going on in Ukraine, um, thousands of deaths and millions, I don't know the number of women and children leaving the country. Um, it's just awful. And I, we're I all feeling that. Living here with me, Dorothy. You um, do. I have two young Ukrainian women here. Oh. They're not women, they're, they're teenagers really. Um, oh, and you know they're the, for the last few weeks it's like they're here on a bit of an adventure and I've been helping them get a job and you know they're a bit excited and giggly and talking to their friends at night um, but then last weekend Odessa was hit the time they're from and oh. they, they I, I believe there was eight people killed they knew a young couple that were killed in that missile attack. So their experience completely changed. You uh, know, and even just before I came on to you, I was down in the kitchen doing the washing up because that's what I do. And, you know, one of them was on the phone to her mom and I, it was all in Ukrainian they were speaking, but I could tell from the tone, tone of voice. that something was not okay. And, you know, I just made a cup of tea and left it on the table and, came and sat down and when she'd finished the call which seemed to end abruptly and you know it's it's their families trying to decide do we get out of here the Russians are closer to Odessa yeah. now do we stay do we go we don't want to go but we have to protect our our elders and our youth and it's just an impossible situation it is um, it's and, and it's it's here in my living room Oh, it's amazing that you're doing that, Liz. How marvelous. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm someone who, it, you, I have to act, you know? <laughs> no, there's no point saying how terrible it all is and then doing nothing. Um, yeah. It feels good to at least be doing my little bit. Um, you know, and as my 12-year-old my said yesterday, I asked him, how do you feel, you know, because this might be on an ongoing basis. It could be for a year. And how do you feel about sharing our home? And he just looked at me and he said, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, they're really nice. Yeah. But the collective grief, it's its so present, isn't it, Dorothy? Yeah. You know, yeah. from climate grief to pandemic yes. grief to war to almost a grief over humanity. Yeah. You know, I know certainly when I was growing up and we looked at the atrocities of World War II and we yeah. thought, God, that wasn't that long ago. How did we let that happen? With all that we know, how did we let that happen in the 1940s? Little did we know that this could happen again. Yes. that's. Yeah. I think that's where that collective grief that we're feeling about the war is, we're stunned, but you know, day after day, all of the photos in the New York Times and um, it's almost impossible to process. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's almost like grief as well, isn't it? Yes, Where it is. We have this notion as humanity that we're evolving yeah. to some sort of finite evolved enlightenment mm -hmm. or light being or something, but, but our humanity is more cyclical we do tend to repeat mistakes again and again. And, you know, with grief, it's also cyclical. It's not linear. True. Um, it is. You know, it now is. the cycles can can lose their potency maybe as we move forward yeah. with our grief. They become less stingy and, you know, there's there's more space around them and more more room for other things. But grief never leaves us. And maybe the... No. Maybe the atrocities of being human never leave us either. It's a curious one. Will there it always is. be a Putin and a Trump for every generation? Exactly. Exactly. And it's um, and you know, somehow the words, you know, if you don't know history, you repeat it, but then that can just be ignored. So back to your book, Dorothy, The Anatomy of Grief. What was your hope in writing this book? Um, um, for people to know that grief affects the human self, that it's okay to give them permission to grieve, to feel their grief, um, not, for, not for it to overpower them in ways that they didn't know about. I hope that there were, you know, like I do talk about um, physiology of grief, the evolutionary origins of grief, um, and then talk about how grief is different for whoever it is that you've lost, like a mother, a father, a child, um, a sibling, or a partner, a significant other, a spouse. And, and to know, to have the, um, I guess to give them, the, to give the bereaved the knowledge of what's happening so that Instead of, oh, my God, what's happening to me? I feel like I'm going crazy. I can't sleep. I can't eat, etc. Those questions will be answered. This is what's happening. Your sleep is affected. You can't think clearly. Um, you don't feel well. Um, you don't have the energy that you had. That to give people the knowledge that it's okay and it will subside won't go away and i don't and we don't know how long it will take to calm down but there will be times when it will bubble up again in ways that you think oh my god i thought i was not feeling this like this anymore and it does and that it's okay and always to be able to use words when people don't want to talk about your loss well because it depends where you are. You have to take that into consideration. But, and you, you know, you might preface that with, I mean, people might preface it with, this may upset you, but it's really helpful for me to talk about. I lost my, my loved one, whoever that was. And it's really helpful for me to talk about it. Words, knowledge, knowledge 
um, dispels mystery. Um, you get answers. Sometimes people get annoyed because you ask too many questions, but, um, and I guess I hope. And then the very last chapter that I call Bittersweet Alchemy, when I suggest and hope and see, have seen that the leaden grief that you've felt can be transformed into the gold of the joy that you feel when you remember your loved one. Always bittersweet, but there is a change. Mm. And what you will do with that, knowing that you've changed, um, with that knowledge, you know, in one of the um, research uh, studies that I was that I studied, it was Williams syndrome, and the parents called because that was um, where the postmortem work was, and so. Um, a father called and said uh, he and his wife wanted to donate their son's brain. He had just died of a heart attack, which is part of what can happen in, in um, Williams syndrome, stenosis of the heart. And um, he said at the end, after he talked about the son quite a lot, when I called back and, and got details, we talked for quite a long time. He said, you know, I think this will really help my wife and me because we know that this is we're donating his brain and this is for research that will help other people and something like, and also like what you're doing, Liz, taking in these two children, really. Um, what can we do? What can you do for yourself? What can you do to remember that? I've talked too long. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. It's the alchemy that you're talking about at the end of your book, isn't it? we, you know, there's very little we can do about certain things happening, but mm -hmm. how we respond to them is entirely in our hands. It's true. I cannot stop Putin's war, but I can certainly give my spare bedroom over. Um, you know, like, you know, we can't stop grieving in the world or experiencing loss but we can write books about our experience so that the people coming behind us have a little bit more of a manual than we had, you know, yeah. or um, I think that's the motivation for everybody who shares their story on a podcast like this. It's to leave something useful behind rather yeah. than just the suffering of it all. Yes. And, you know, I do, I do want to mention that the book is coming out in paperback this month, May 17th. Oh, um, so um, anyway, just wanted to mention that. Yeah, super. And I, again, I'll just uh, read it out there. It's called The Anatomy of Grief by Dorothy Hollinger. And uh, it's published by Yale University Press. And it's a, a lovely manual. And um, it feels gorgeous in the hand, actually. And I'm <laughs> delighted we finally got to talk, Dorothy. Um, yes, I am. Such too. a pleasure. Oh, it was wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely. Yeah, it was it was my my pleasure and so much there. But I think like always, we could talk for hours and still talk for hours. But for people listening, they maybe will hear, oh, disenfranchised grief, Ken Doka, what's that about? And they'll do a little Google yeah. and it'll lead them, you know, to find something really helpful yes. to them. Um we covered quite a lot there on prolonged grief disorder and um grief in the body and lots of research as well it would be lovely to speak with you again oh i'd love to maybe we can plan that in a couple of months down the line okay sure when your paperback is out as part oh of sure okay that sounds wonderful thank you so much liz and thank you everyone for who's listening thanks so much darling okay take care thank you for bye listening bye. to this episode of shapes of grief this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do see your healthcare provider. Once again, please consider supporting the podcast by donating on shapesofgrief.com or becoming a patron on patreon.com. I rely on your support to keep going. The music is performed by Baca Beyond, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from Miles Gleeson, 
Take really good care.